You are tuned into The Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of The Dr. Tina Show, a man who needs no introduction, Sean Stevenson. You may know Sean better as the creator of the number one health podcast in the United States, The Model Health Show, or as the author of the USA Today national best-selling book, Eat Smarter, and the international best-selling book, Sleep Smarter. Sean has been holding it down these past few years over on different social media platforms. I absolutely adore this man. He's so well-spoken, he's so smart, and he has an incredibly huge heart. Sean is a graduate of the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where he studied business biology and nutritional science and became the co-founder of Advanced Integrative Health Alliance. Sean has been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, The New York Times, Muscle and Fitness, ABC News, ESPN, and many other major media outlets. Today, we got a deep dive into the topic of sleep. I get asked about this often, and you've heard me say that sleep is everything. Well, Sean's going to break it down for you, how sleep is intimately intertwined into every aspect of your health and healing. Get ready to take notes and enjoy every minute. Let's jump in. All right, Sean Stevenson, I am so excited to have you on the Dr. Tina show today. Thank you for being here. I was honored to be on your show recently and had such a great time talking with you and connecting with you. And I'm just honored that you're here. Would you please tell the audience a bit about yourself? Absolutely. And the honor is all mine because you have a big fan in me. And, you know, just I'm so grateful to be able to you know, have these conversations and it's just an exciting time. It's a crazy time, but it's also very exciting because, you know, mediums like this and backgrounds like yours, like mine, have the ability to reach a lot of people and to empower folks right now at a time when disempowerment is so, is so pervasive, you know, so I'm really grateful for that. And so how I got into this field, I had no idea I'd be doing this, like not even a whiff of working in the health space. I did believe that I was going to be in athletics, which there's a strange crossover there. You know, there are some intersections, which even in that field, you know, things are changing so much today. You know, I I worked at a university for many years working with athletes and seeing more and more, like especially the top programs now, they all have nutrition programs, protocols, you know, strength conditioning coaches. Like when I was in the field, when I was, you know, working with athletes all those years ago, the strength and conditioning part was just sprinkling in a little bit. It's just kind of very old school. Like you just go, you go to the gym, you do these lifts. Now it's very calculated. The recovery, you know, you'll see saunas, you'll see ice baths at all these institutions, nice. you know. And so things are really changing even more and faster because of mediums like this and bringing about data and personalities, teachers who are able to bypass these traditional methods of education you know, as you know, like one of the statistics, I was just actually researching this yesterday, but it could take on average for a clinical a double-blind placebo-controlled gold standard trial to affirm a certain scientific tenet. It can take almost 20 years for university textbooks to accommodate or to acknowledge that this change has happened, right? And this is with the internet, like, which is so crazy, wow. you know? And so there's, once you get locked into a certain way of thinking, it's very difficult to change the very institutions that are propagating this information. So anyway, so I went to a traditional university with the hopes of, you know, playing college football and making it to the pros and that whole thing. 
But it was in high school when I started to run into some serious challenges. Uh, when I was 15 years old, I ran a 4.540, which is like people, if they know about the NFL combine, it's just like it's a pretty good time for defensive back, running back, which is what I, I did, returning kicks and punts. And I was just 15. I was just 15 running that time. And so I was performing on the football field and on the track, but it was at track practice when the first glimpse of some issues happened. I was doing a 200 meter time trial, which is half the track. And the time trial is just basically, you know, it's me and the coach or maybe me and another, you know, athlete to run with me. Um, but I was coming off the curve of the track into the straightaway. And as I was making that turn, my hip broke. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not know. I did not. I knew you had some low back issues, but that's intense. Yes. Yeah. So it's so crazy. And I didn't know what happened. I had no idea. I thought maybe I pulled a muscle. I just kind of came up limping and I came to track the next couple of days, actually two days until the trainer was like, you need to go and get a scan, you know, get an x-ray. And so I did that. Physician put the x-ray up and he's like, oh, there's the problem. You know, you can see my iliac crest, like the tip of my hip just floating off in space. And, you know, when, when you see something like that, you know, what I experienced in that moment was something called standard of care, right? So I was given some NSAIDs, I was given some crutches. Uh, I had a little bit of advanced treatment, like I had some ultrasound done, which if you think about ultrasound, and I think we, we put these words together um, just kind of in our lexicon, we don't think about the meaning, but it's using, sound is literally treating your cells, right? Yeah. So, but anyways, it's a whole other book we, you know, might not even get, get to open today. But anyways, and also I was given, he gave me like this whirlpool adapter thing to put onto my bathtub. He's just like, do the hot, you know, hot tub, that kind of thing. But anyway, so with the standard of care, I did the stuff and I was able to heal my hip and get back on the track and get back on the football field. But I kept on having these repetitive injuries and nobody stopped to ask, including that first physician, how did a 15-year-old kid break his hip from running? That is incredibly yeah, that's, abnormal. That sounds like the female triad, the female athlete triad, not young man. Yes. So it tends to happen with folks who are older and also tends to happen more frequently in women, right? So that might elude if somebody is educated in this space, like there might be some issues happening with your hormones, right? Your bone density, basic things like that. But again, Nobody stopped to ask these questions. Standard of care was the order of the day. Uh, but fast forward the story. Um, ultimately, when I was 20 years old, I get diagnosed with degenerative disc disease and degenerative bone disease. So my my spine and my bones were just kind of, this. there was an arthritic condition to put in a more like popular lexicon. But I know some people listening, they've dealt with degenerative disc disease or know somebody who has. It's become, it's the, the rates have skyrocketed. But what was abnormal is I was 20 years old. And for me to get diagnosed at that point, I had two herniated discs as well, L4, L5, S1, severe degeneration. And my physician at the time told me I had the spine of an 80-year-old man, like an unhealthy 80-year-old, by the way. So that degree of advanced aging had taken place within my body. And for it to get shown up at that moment, it was years. It might have been 10 years of degradation in the making for it to show up like that. 10 years of severely unhealthy uh, internal environment. And... To fast forward the story one more time, you know, there's a lot that happens within this, in this moment, this kind of, um, this diagnosis moment. But at the time, my physician, again, this is a thing that a lot of folks, we can get into this, uh, what aboutism and, you know, pointing fingers. It's not that he meant to do what he did, but 
he told me, you know, I was just like, I was used to seeing the trainers. I was like, okay, so what do we do to fix this? And he was like, literally pumped his hands. Like, I'm sorry, son, this is incurable. You know, this is something that you're just going to have to live with. And it didn't really register to me cognitively. And I asked him, and I still to this day, Tina, I've never, I, I don't know where this question could have come from. And I asked him, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating? Should I change the way I'm exercising? And I again, I had no context to ask him this question. I had no idea that nutrition even mattered like that. But I just, I I associated with being healthy, like something with my diet and exercise. And again, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, this has nothing to do with what you're eating. This is something that just happens. I'm sorry that it happened to you. We're going to get you some medication to help you to deal with the symptoms and help you to manage this. But I'm sorry, son. Now, the crazy thing within that one statement is that he said, this has nothing to do with what you're putting in your mouth, but go ahead and put these pills in your mouth. Right? Oh, it's just like... Oh, it's it's infuriating. I mean, I can tell you as a chiropractor, that is complete bullshit. <laughs> that's just... That's just that, I, that was my first thought when you said your hip fractured. I was like, did were you malnourished? Were you anorexic? I mean, that's, you know... So here's... This is where it all kind of hits ahead. Fast forward two years from this moment, you know, when I leave his doctor's office, which I had a kind of a nuisance of a pain, like a kind of conic, uh, a consistent sciatic pain, but not, it just, it was annoying. And I had a physical, a manual labor job. I was full-time student and full-time working at a casino in St. Louis, right? And so, but I was just having trouble working. And I went from that to after that moment, that diagnosis, and I've been dealing with that for months. Within two weeks, now I'm having chronic debilitating pain. Like every time I stand up, I get this just, and I can't even put it into words. It was such a nightmare. And I'm not, I'm not averse to pain by any form or fashion, but it's like a level 10, like crippling, like I, I like crumble, I fold over and then I can walk normally. Right. But I know that it's going to happen when I stand up. And I'm waiting for it to happen. And just I'm kind of walking, taking these short steps every time I stand up for two years. And so oh, what I no. did was I stopped standing up as much as possible. I just laid down, sat on my couch. I did as little as possible. I went from a full credit low to three credits. It was embarrassing, you know, going to school, standing up and having my body jerk back. And also I start to gain all this weight now. Like the one thing that I had kind of going for me was... I looked fit, quote, fit, right, which is a big difference between fitness and health. But I was still made of these very low quality materials that I was making my tissues out of. And um, so to put the kind of icing on the, the cake of the story or the cherry on top, two years went by and it was it was the worst time of my life for sure. You know, I, you know, I gained all this weight and I was obviously just in a state of turmoil, internal turmoil and fear and doubt. And I habitually was asking this question, why me? Like every day, it was just on repeat. Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why won't somebody help me? And there's this really interesting phenomenon that the human brain invokes. It's it's something called instinctive elaboration. And essentially, any question that you pose your mind, it's always seeking your internal and external environment to answer this question. This is Questions really are the answer in how the human brain works. People talk about the reticular activating system, reticular cortex, these parts of the brain. But seriously, these are guiding our focus, right? We're taking in trillions of bits of data and what we are focused on really does attune our, our, our sight and our awareness in our environment. So as I'm asking these questions, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why won't somebody help me? 
I'm getting this external internal feedback why I'm not helpable, why you know I'm a, I'm not good enough, or why I deserve this to happen, right? Because my life, you know, my life structure is where I come from, you know, like all of these stories, right? And after these two years, something really profound happened. And some people get this and their life changes. Some people never do. For me, it took two years. I didn't get it the next day after leaving there. I was very disempowered. Now, leading up to that moment, as you know, I'm a very analytical, logical human being. And I'm also very uh, self-sufficient and introspective, right? So I have these principles that would lead me to not simply just believe what somebody says. But in that moment, I outsourced my belief, my thinking to this man who I believed had more knowledge base of my body than I did. And in some contexts, he did. But what was missing was he didn't walk in my shoes. Like he had no right to have the final say about what was possible for me. And so I had also, he gave me a permission slip because truly my life had been a struggle up until that point. I was living in Ferguson, Missouri, sleeping on a mattress on the floor, trying to be the first person in my family to graduate from college, let alone go to, go to college. Like it was a tremendous struggle, just the environment itself, being around and, and participating in, in, in so much you know turbulence. I was just like, he's like, you don't have to fight anymore. And so I took it. But I saw where my life was going. And fortunately, it's always so much more helpful when we have somebody that believes in us. Now, that somebody can be us, but it takes, especially when you're down, it takes takes some digging. But I had my grandmother, and she was pestering me those two years, always calling, checking on me. And I was like, I'm fine, Grandma, you know. But I wasn't fine, and she knew it. And she was the person who really instilled this love of education into me. And she always just made me feel like I was going to do something special. She just kind of knew it. And even now, like, I believe she had like 13 grandkids. But even even to this day, the other grandkids are talking shit like, you were her favorite. I'm sorry. <laughs> it wasn't my choice. It wasn't my doing. But no, truly, we even talked about this before we got started. You know, just... She had the opportunity, I was her first grandchild. She had the opportunity to be the parent that she always wanted to be. And so she poured a lot into me. I was also, you know, significantly older than a lot of those kids. And so I lived with her for a while. And having that blueprint and just this feeling that I'm going to do something great despite my environment and looking at that moment after those two years, and I'd I'd gotten other opinions from other physicians who told me the same thing, gave me another prescription, another slip for my job that I had, you know, uh, bed rest. But in that moment, it just all came rushing back to me that I had outsourced my potential. My blueprint for life was that I was going to do something exceptional. I was going to be successful. I was going to be healthy. I was going to have a healthy family. Unlike I didn't see, I was going to do all the stuff that I saw growing up that I didn't want. And here I was, I had thrown in the towel and I was radically unhealthy, radically unsuccessful and suffering. And so in that moment, I decided to get well. And it sounds simple, but most people never do that. It's more like wishful thinking, like, I'll try this. I'll see what happens. You know, I wish this would change. But I, I decided no matter what, no matter what, come what may, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to feel better. And it was like, it would seem kind of miraculous. And I don't use that word lightly, 
But over the course of the next six weeks, I gained about uh, maybe 20 pounds over that two-year period. And I had lost like 15 pounds. Like it just flew off of me. Results are not typical, by the way. Um, (laughs) I was the, quote, skinny kid in my family. But now it's just like all this stuff had kicked on. And it just flew off me. And the pain I'd been experiencing for two years that had me terrified to stand up was gone. And nine months later, I got a scan done on my spine. The degeneration had completely resolved or reversed. My two herniated disc had retracted. And I had a healthy, you know, uh, spine of somebody in my age bracket within a nine-month period. You know, now again, I remember the physician standing there rubbing his chin like, "What? whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Like, those are the words that he said. And he didn't ask me what I was, well, I mean, he, he did a little bit, but he didn't care. He didn't really care. He thought this was spontaneous remission, right? But I had already started working with folks and shifting my coursework into um, biology and nutritional science and kinesiology. And I wanted to find a way to serve people who'd been told the same thing, that there wasn't a way, there wasn't a possibility for them. And, you know, all that's led me, you know, to the, the best-selling books and, you know, the number one podcast and all those things and just have an opportunity to connect with amazing people like you. Oh, God, that's a great story. I did not know that about you. And I, it, it, uh, it warms my heart because the work that I did in my practice for over a decade was to get people like you out of pain. Like, that's what I did. I mean, I specialized in chronic musculoskeletal pain and regenerative injections. And I've, you hit the nail on the head of, uh, you made a decision and that's really, and I've personally, you know, you heard my story as well on your podcast. And I just made a decision one day that this was not going to beat me and that, that there was a way out and whatever that way ended up looking like was not going to be based on comparisons to other people in my age bracket. I was not going to play that game. It was just a matter of like, how can I, and I, you know, I, I personally still deal with chronic pain quite a bit, actually, on certain depends on the day, but it's still always just a me versus me thing. It's just a get up and go kind of. And I, I would often try to instill that in my patients. And I'm so grateful that you just shared that with us because not very many people would take that opportunity. They just wanted me to inject them or adjust them or give them supplements or do something to them, which is a passive care model. It's not an active care model. You know, and the active care model comes, the real work comes with every decision you make of food choices that you put in your mouth. And do you put yourself to bed at a decent time? And who do you surround yourself with? What kind of people are you surrounding yourself with and, you know, what kind of ambitions and goals do you have and what kind of discipline do you structure in your life? And that's really, I think, the key, which looking at you, I don't know you very well, but you seem like a very disciplined person. You have your structures in place and you you follow them and you emulate them across your Instagram page, which I'm so grateful for. So um, so how did you, what, what came next? You decided that was it. You're going into healthcare, basically. I mean, from a more of a sports standpoint, it sounds like, but how did that next phase progress? Well, all those things that you just mentioned integrate with each other. You know, the nutrition, the movement, the sleep, the relationships, and they tend to evoke participation in the other. So what I mean is I'm a nutritionist. For me, food was the portal. There are many paths to the goal, but eventually you're going to find out that it's not the whole thing. But for me, for a while there, food became the whole thing because I had something really profound happen. When I made that decision to get well, again, I'm an analytical person. I wasn't just like, 
you know, now, you know, uh, I don't know, Aladdin popped out of my mattress, you know, just like, well, you know, uh, what do you wish? It was, I put a plan together and those plan, the plan entailed two major things and one thing that was kind of a, a side effect. The two major things was changing the way that I was eating because I wanted to quote, lose weight. And I put that in quotations because even that story, and we'll talk about this too in relationship to one of these other things in a moment. I'm trying not to give it away. But so <laughs> I, I looked at, okay, I'm going to change my nutrition so I can gain weight. Just a cognitive thing. Like I'm going to get some of this weight off my frame since I'm heavy and it's putting compression on my disc. Like I was just trying to use some, some logic there. The other thing was my low hanging fruit, which was fitness. You know, I was very versed in all these different uh, styles of training and exercises because I'd been an athlete all these years, but I stopped doing everything. And the worst thing that you can do is to do nothing. That's the worst thing that you could do. Because now it wasn't just my spine and bones that were beginning to atrophy, everything, every cell in my body. And people have this, this is a big problem with exercise. There's this cognitive association of exercise with being looking good. Like that's why we do it. So we can achieve some kind of a you know, vanity metric. And that's cool. Like we can have that. Nobody's waking up like, you know, I want to look like shit today. Like we all want to (laughs) look and feel good, but exercise is a, it's something our genes expect us to to do. Exercise is very close to the word exorcise, right? Exorcise, like to get something out, to expel things. And exercise, a huge component of it is elimination of metabolic waste. And also it's about assimilation of nutrients, assimilation. And early on, now here's, here's what happened. And I don't talk about this very often, but because it's you, I can share this with you. When I changed the question that I was asking, because I was habitually asking, why me? Why won't somebody help me? And I, and I asked this question, what can I do to get healthy? What can I do to get healthy? What can I do to feel better? And these became my narratives. And within just a couple of days, things that were there the whole time, all those two years, let alone my whole life, the cert- certain books, certain people that had already been in my life, like everything started to, quote, show up, but they were always there. And one of those people was a girl that I was, you know, on and off, you know, kicking it with. And she went to Logan Chiropractic School. All right. Ah. And so one time she- <laughs> I knew there was a chiropractor <laughs> in the story. <laughs> she took me over. Like, it was like, she got up together with some of her chiropractic friends and like, he just adjusting each other. I was just like, what the hell is going on? Like, why did you bring me here? And, but now, now that my, my attention is attuned to health, she takes me to Wild Oats, right? Which has since been bought up by Whole Foods, but Wild Oats in St. Louis. And I didn't even know it existed. I didn't know what that was. And so I walk into this place and it's just like open air, like there's space, there's a juice bar, there's like grass inside. I'm like, why is there grass (laughs) inside, right? But also there was an aisle that had some books and one of them was this nutrition prescription book and some other books. And I opened up and being in college, like I was always writing papers, doing research, that kind of stuff. So I went right to like, is this actually backed by some published data, like peer reviewed data? And I looked up degenerative disc disease and I saw these studies and these nutrients and like, I'm just like, what the hell? Like, I had no idea that this matters. Like, what? Well, for my bone density, all I knew about was calcium for like from marketing. And there's like 20 other key nutrients, many of them more important than calcium, but calcium got the marketing mantra. You know, you need uh, omega-3s to even absorb and utilize calcium properly. 
you know, sulfur-bearing amino acids and magnesium, and the list goes on and on. I wasn't getting none of that shit with my drive-through diet. You know, I, I mean, when I say eat, I was eating fast food every day, I ate fast food every single day because it was cheap and accessible. Unless I literally just didn't have a dollar, you know, then I would just eat a couple packets of ramen noodles. But it was, I'm in Ferguson, Missouri, within a mile and a half radius, every single fast food, and I'm not exaggerating, you can hardly name one that was not within a mile and a half of my apartment, not, not to mention all the liquor stores. And I can go on a, a run right here and I can list all of them for you, but I'll conserve <laughs> some time and I'll tell you, like, I was, that's all that I knew. I didn't know what, or, I didn't know or, what, what the hell is organic. Like, we didn't have, we didn't have a gym, a yoga, a yoga studio? you kidding me? Like we didn't have any of that. All we had was things that, that encouraged disease and I was inundated with it. And so here I am in this place that's at least 45 minutes from my house, but now I know that there's this, this other reality. And so the first thing that I did, Tina was, you know, um, I'm just being honest, I became a natural pill popper. So I found out about like this nutrient, that nutrient. And I started to, but which was not very cost effective on my university, you know, refund check, you know, um, but also something occurred to me that, and I'm so grateful for this. People are saying this a lot now, but like, what, what have people done traditionally? Like, how are humans getting these nutrients over time? Because for me, it just like hit me, like these pills are new, right? And so what foods to have these nutrients? And so I just began to flood my tissues with these foods that had these key nutrients and that was the underlying tenet. And so I want to share this with everybody. It's a big takeaway from today is that every single cell in your body is literally made from the food that you eat. Your heart cells are made from the food that you eat. Every neuron, every bacteria cell that you're carrying, the trillions of bacteria, your immune cells are literally made from the food that you eat. And this, if we don't have this foundational tenet, especially for our, our physicians, you know, they, they just don't get this because they're not taught this. One of my friends, I just actually, the episode came out today, award-winning gastroenterologist, you know, he went to school for, I think, 11 years. And he shared with me in that 11, he, he, he deals with the treatment and support of the organs that are, that are required for assimilation, digestion, and elimination of food. That's his focus. That's what he's award-winning, best in the field at it, at that thing. And he shared with me that he learned about food for accumulatively about a month of those 11 years, right? And so you are dealing with the organs that are designed and have to deal with food, and you don't know shit about food. Because even within that, it was very rudimentary, superficial stuff. Like, you know, if this person has, you know, this rare, you know, B9 deficiency, this is what you do, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And so realizing this, like I get to, I've been making my body out of very low quality materials and the human body is so resilient. That's what we don't get. All these epidemics of chronic diseases, what the, what, what the human body is doing, even with type two diabetes, for example, it's just adjusting its function to operate under unideal conditions and keep you alive. Right. And so but when we provide our bodies with the right stuff that it's been associating with for, you know, our entire evolution, it will choose, preferentially choose the higher quality materials. But if you're not providing your body with those materials, it will patchwork you together and keep you, 
keep you ticking. That's what I was experiencing. And so that was number one. I changed my nutrition and the assimilation. I came across a study when I went to Wild Oats. I happened upon a book that was done on racehorses and it found that these racehorses, which is a I've been watching this this show uh, Yellowstone, you know, so I've been like in the in the whole horse phenomenon. But it's this is we're talking billion dollar industry. If a horse breaks a bone, this could you could be missing out on hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars potentially. And so they did a study to increase the bone density of the horses. And so they had the control group that did nothing with the horses. Then they had the supplement group. They were giving them some of the supplements that I was taking, and they did increase their bone density. But then they had another group that they gave them the supplements and walked the horses regularly, and they had an even higher assimilation of those nutrients and higher bone density. The exercise was about assimilation. So I started to do what I could, which I was in a lot of pain. I love that. So I just started, you know, I started on a stationary bike. You know, about a week later, I started walking. About a week after that, I started to pick up a couple of weights. And again, six weeks to that moment of decision, everything changed. Pain-free, I'd lost this weight. It was just this vitality had been turned on when I started stacking conditions. And the last thing was that side effect. I was now sleeping. The greatest struggle over those two years, my biggest struggle was sleeping at night because I would change positions and that sciatic pain would wake me up. It was an absolute nightmare. And so I was on drugs for that, you know, prescription and some over-the-counter stuff. And when I was finally able to pull myself out of bed because of that comatose experience, like this pseudo sleep that I was getting, you know, every day was just a struggle. By the time I kind of was up, it was nighttime again, right? And so... The things I was doing during the day helped me to sleep better at night. And that's one of the other big takeaways for everybody today is that a great night of sleep starts the moment you wake up. And now, you know, today we know that not only does our sleep control, you know, our our energy, our cognition, but also our metabolism. It might be the most powerful controller of our metabolism and also of our immune system. We've got some really powerful data, even in regards to this virus that's been on everybody's mind. And which is determined by our quality of sleep or lack thereof. Amen. (laughs) I could listen to you go on for hours. I love the way your brain works. It is so refreshing and oddly similar to the way that I think through things. And I just, I love hearing it. And I love hearing you, your story of overcoming what you went through just through perseverance and stacking that that knowledge base, you know, just as you went. And how old were you when you were going through all that, when that transition happened for you? Age 20 diagnosis, 22 and a half-ish is when I, when everything clicked and I woke up. How epic. What a great age to be doing that too, when your testosterone and all things are, all regenerative things are working in your favor at that point. You know, the work that I did was in regenerative medicine and people would come to me and pay me exorbitant amounts of money to inject them with their own blood or their own stem cells. And I would try to get through, I did not ethically take every patient. I had a pretty rigorous application process and I probably turned away seven or eight out of 10 people who applied because it just it did not seem ethical to me to be taking their hot mess of blood and fat cells and condensing it down and injecting it into their hot mess of a joint. And I just had uh, Sean, Dr. Sean Baker on and we were talking about 
how joint disease really at its core is a metabolic process, right? Like these degenerative joint processes are metabolic disease of the joint. It's diabetes of the joint. Osteoarthritis is diabetes of the joint. Osteoporosis is diabetes of the bone. And I, I sometimes look back at what I went through in my younger years, although I'll tell you, it took me a lot longer to come around. I don't think I got my shit together till I was about 28, 29 is when I finally realized that Pop-Tarts were not the answer. <laughs> Cigarettes and Pop-Tarts and Snapple were not serving me well. But the the journey was similar, you know, and I, I like how you alluded to that. A lot of people start with the supplements, right? It's it's like a gateway drug to health. I love what you said about exercise is how you assimilate it into your cells. That's brilliant. I have not heard it put that way, but that is a thousand percent correct. And and then just really trying to achieve that homeostasis so that everything is working in your favor instead of against you. Because you, again, nailed it. These chronic degenerative illnesses are just the body trying to return to homeostasis through the mechanisms that they know how to do. And in their healing response, you get the inflammatory response, right? It's like that chronic inflammation that's driving that I talk about so much on here on this podcast and on social media and that metabolic dysfunction really is just a homeostatic mechanism of the body trying to do to heal you, to do what it's supposed to do. And it all goes awry. And we live in a world of homeostasis gone wrong, really. Mm. We have a preponderance of it. Yes, <laughs> so. it's a lot of rye, a rye, yeah. <laughs> it really is. You, when you just mentioned, you know, the, the dysfunctional metabolism of the joints, for example, like that's what I'm really understanding right now and i and i see that this is where science and medicine is going this is all about metabolism all of it we just tend to think about metabolism in terms of body fat and weight loss or weight gain that kind of stuff even what's happening with dysfunctional immune responses has to do with metabolism your your immune system has a metabolism it's called immunometabolism there's an entire field and there's so much data you know all these different studies but all of that went out the window you know, and so there's two parts to that immunometabolism, by the way. One of those parts is the metabolism of the immune system itself, right? The ability to assimilate nutrients, to eliminate waste, to replicate all of these different factors. The list goes on and on. There's so much happening when it comes to our immune system and the metabolic function of our immune system. So that's number one. Number two is the the metabolism of the of the of the subject overall and how that controls the immune system itself, right? So that aspect of metabolism, your metabolism overall, having an it is the controlling factor over your immune system response. So one of the things that we know is that when we venture into a state of obesity. You know, our fat cells are pretty remarkable. You know, like, again, we, we tend to have this very black or white opinion of these things. But without our fat cells being so freaking intelligent, the human species would have been gone a long time ago. It's one of the things that really helped us to make it to this place and to evolve and become the people that we are today. And so it's a great thing. But our cells were never designed to carry this much excess. And so our fat cells, but evolution doesn't come without, you know, some party gifts. And so... Our fat cells can literally expand like a thousand times their size. It's insane. And I tend to think about it like a little, you know, hefty, hefty cinch sack, you know, like they're tiny at first and then over time, like they can really expand. But here's the thing. 
when it, when your body starts carrying all that excess within a fat cell that was never designed to carry that that much excess, it's it signals an immune response. It's, it, it kind of the best way to put this is it kind of sends out a false distress signal because mm-hmm. you're not really infected, but that's the way that these fat cells start signaling to your immune system as if you were infected, and it creates this hyper state of inf- inflammation. And when you're in this pro-inflamed state, and then you your body meets with an inflammatory driving uh, communicable disease, what do you think is going to happen? Like, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. And so that's one of the things that's really happened with some of these poor outcomes. And as I mentioned, and I want to share this with you, <laughs> one of those terms that really got popularized, and I didn't like it the first time I heard it, because pro- probably because of the person it came from and, a, and kind of popular uh, mechanism, but this cytokine storm, right? Cytokine storm, right? It's just this is um, like um, kind of like Doctor Strange, you know, multiverse of madness. <laughs> it has this kind of menacing thing, and it's just like it's this term that can create fear, that can create um, you know anxiety, but without any context. What the hell does that mean? What does it mean? Yeah. Is this something that the body just does on a regular basis, anyways? And so one of the things that I'm going to give you two parts. So number one is when you're any, every single night, when you go to sleep, your body releases cytokines that actually help to regulate your sleep quality. And if people want to take some time, you can actually look up some studies on this. It's really fascinating because it's not just this, these cytokines just are responsible for our immune system. They also have these other mechanisms with our cognition, even with regulating our sleep quality, really crazy stuff. So that's one side. But on the other side, what we see is that sleep deprivation can cause an excessive production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. All right, and this is highlighted at the Mayo Clinic, and I know some of the folks up there; these are my friends, my colleagues. But the Mayo Clinic found that people who don't get quality sleep or get enough sleep are far more likely to become sick after being exposed to a virus. All right, this is again this was prior to to, to COVID making its appearance in our world. We know this. If you're sleep deprived, your your susceptibility begins to ratchet up to the point that it becomes like this exponential issue where one of the studies that came out during this time span, the last two years, published in the BMJ, which I think of all the big journals, they've done the best job with bringing about more balanced data and also showing data that is oftentimes uncomfortable if you're just seeing things in this tunnel vision way. And so what they found was that, and actually I'm going to tell you exactly what it said here. So this study found that folks, and they actually looked at people's sleep habits, and they found that essentially every hour of sleep loss for, we just take your baseline amount, right? So we'll just say you, you get eight hours of sleep. Every hour of sleep that you lose leads to a 12% increase in your risk of contracting COVID, right? So you're missing two of those hours, suddenly you have a 24% heightened chance of contracting this virus, right? And so the crazy thing was they looked at six countries and they found that longer sleep duration was associated with a significant drop in risk of contracting the virus in the first place, not to mention having much better outcomes, right? Being asymptomatic and or having mild to moderate symptoms versus 
having severe symptoms when we're chronically sleep deprived. And now where does this all tie in? According to the CDC, and I, when I say this stuff, I can't help but smile because the CDC is who's all this data has been pointing towards. And also they've had such a hand in controlling people's society's lives over these last two years. But most people don't actually look at the data that the CDC is publishing. I just did a talk for an event in Mexico and an employee from the CDC came up afterwards, after the talk. And she was just like, I've been trying to tell people this stuff for the past two years, but it's just like nobody's really listening. Like we publish data on all these things, but people don't really understand or care. And that includes people who work at the CDC. So the CDC found that 115 million Americans are regularly sleep deprived, all right? Staggering amount. Nobody cares. It's beyond epidemic at this point. And again, if we understand how much our sleep is controlling our immune response, how much our sleep is controlling our metabolism, which we could definitely talk about in a moment. But also couple that with, you know, and I, from my knowledge, I was the first person to push this out into mediums, you know, social media, the podcast media, all that stuff, because I've just been staying on top and watching the CDC stuff that they're publishing. And so they did this huge meta-analysis. This was published on July 1st, 2021. And it was over 540,000 COVID-19 patients from over 800 U.S. hospitals. And they found that obesity was the number one risk factor for death from COVID. We knew that, not doing anything, anything about it, but we knew that already. Second leading risk factor was anxiety and fear-related disorders, was the second leading risk factor for death from covid and one of the things we also see that begins to skyrocket when we're sleep deprived is anxiety. Third leading risk factor was, was diabetes. And one of the first things researchers at Stanford found that just one night of sleep deprivation can suddenly make you as insulin resistant as somebody who can get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Your body's the, the metabolic operation starts to shift in these very abnormal ways as your body's trying to sort things out. This doesn't mean you need to go and get metformin. This just means you just need to get back on, you know, a healthy sleep schedule, you know, but there are some metabolic switches that happen. And so to put a cherry on top of all this data is just that the underlying mechanisms that are causing our greatest susceptibility, by the way, they also noted that 95% of the people hospitalized with COVID had at least one pre-existing chronic condition. Most had two or more. All right. But just forget that as well. But we're not looking at the underlying causes of our susceptibility. And at the end of the day, one of the most overlooked and inconvenient ones and simple ones is our epidemic rates of sleep deprivation in our culture today. It's huge. It's everything. I, and I, I say those literal words all the time. Sleep is everything. It's, it's 100% everything. And it, without it, nothing works right. It doesn't matter how many supplements you're pounding. It doesn't matter how well you're eating. It doesn't matter how well you're exercising, meditating. You could be the Dalai Lama. If you aren't sleeping soundly with good deep sleep and good REM sleep and a good duration, you're, you're, you know, you're, what is that? Like shooting fish in a barrel. 
that's that's really how I felt throughout COVID was watching my, and we talked about this off camera, my really healthy, you know, I tracked my healthy metabolically fit friends, my people that I know, like you and I, we strength train, we do all the right things, we sleep, we eat the foods, we we have the, you know, mindset, we have the mindfulness practices, we steer clear of toxic relationships and friends and toxins in general. And a few of them got hit, most of them sailed right through like it was no big, but a few of them got hit hard. And the one thing they had in common was they were going through a period of sleep deprivation or extreme fatigue or burnout. That study you mentioned also showed a 2.6 times increased risk for COVID severe outcomes with COVID from burnout, because that was in healthcare workers, I think that BMJ study. And so they were looking at those who were burning out. And so that sleep deprivation burnout picture, I have lived it. It's what pulled me out of practice. It's what eventually made me close down my practice was I was dealing with chronic pneumonia. And I knew that I mean, every season like clockwork, I was coming down with severe pneumonia. And I knew that pneumonia had everything to do with sleep deprivation and burnout. And I was traveling all the time. I was on planes all the time. And people said, Oh, take these supplements and wipe down your plane seat. And do all the mitigation efforts. And I'm like, no, dude, I just need to not be totally burned out (laughs) and sleep deprived. That's core level. And having removed myself from clinical practice, I have to say, the first year, all I did was pretty much sleep. I slept harder. I mean, after 25 years of hard grinding, working my ass off, like most humans never do, for 25 years straight, I finally just took a year and slept. And it was it was a phenomenal, Sean. <laughs> it was it was so luxurious and wonderful. And then I was lucky enough to meet the man of my dreams. And he is a sleeper. I mean, the guy is just in bed by 9, 9.30, up by 5 a.m. And my whole life changed with that as well. It's it's such a, 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 it's a luxury at this point in the society, which is so weird. This episode of The Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store. My number one selling product is Easily Relax Tonic. What is Relax Tonic? Relax Tonic is an innovative powdered drink mix that reminds me a whole lot of the cherry flavored Kool-Aid I drank as a kid. Only this Kool-Aid won't brainwash you and might actually help you make better decisions. It contains a blend of ingredients that promotes a relaxed mood by supporting the body's natural neurotransmitter balance and neuronal stabilization. It contains the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA, supports hormonal balance, healthy blood pressure levels already within normal range, and healthy glucose metabolism. Relax Tonic aims to promote a calm, relaxed, well-balanced, emotional, and physiologic state. While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how they work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of the Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Relax Tonic by using the code RELAX10 in all capital letters over inside my store at store.drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A. Again, head to store.drtina.com and be sure to use code RELAX10 for 10% off. Why is it that we have, because I don't know how, you're, you're a bit younger than me, but you're not super young. I remember growing up, not sleeping was like you were super cool if you didn't sleep. You were, you know, we, we really made it into this thing where like, you're such an awesome person. If you only need like five or six hours of sleep, you must be some kind of superhuman. Why did we celebrate it like that? And what has it done to our society? It's, it's very strange, of course. You know, this is one of the things, again, our genes expect us to do. And even our skyrocketing rates of sleep 
issues, sleep-related problems, it's one of the things that your cells, your, 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 your genes, your genetic programs just knows how to do. Your body knows how to go on a sleep mode. But because of the way that our environment is structured, that's really what the underlying thing was to even ha- have these ideas of like, you know, staying up late and like you're, you know, you're the whack person if you go to bed early, if you fall asleep, you know, or you don't want to stay out at the party. I've done the things, you know, like I was that guy, even when I mentioned when I was in college and working at this casino, my shift at the casino started at 4 a.m. And so I would go out to a club and then leave the club and like, you know, the sun's coming up and go right to work, you know, like crazy stuff. I remember the the last time I did that, I was at work and um, I was in the middle of a casino. We I was in this hard count department. So we were like emptying out all the the coins from every machine every day. Right. Very challenging work. And I was, we had just loaded up a cart and I was standing in the casino, like my hand on the cart and I fell asleep standing up in the middle of a casino. You talk about like a freaky dream, like a fever dream kind of thing happened. Like all these ding, 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 like all this crazy stuff happened. And I was just like, oh shit, like this is something is severely wrong here for me to fall asleep standing up like this in the middle of a casino when I was supposed to be protecting all this money, right? And so, yeah, so many of us participate in these things. And, you know, we, there are different, there are different templates, just like no two people have the same metabolism. We all have a unique metabolic fingerprint. You know, we all have a unique microbial fingerprint. Our sleep, same thing. We have some genetic tendencies, but, and there was always a guild of people throughout human evolution who might've been the people who stayed up and watched out, you know, at the watchtower to stand guard. That's a tiny, tiny, teeny, tiny percent of the population who would be doing that for the tribe, all right? For the most part, when we have these perceptions of being a night owl, you are not an owl. That's the thing. You are a human being. And I'm not a vampire. I thought I was a vampire in college, for sure. <laughs> there's a whole vampire, like, there's a, like a vampire association. Did you know about this? Yes. You, oh, I knew it. <laughs> if I'm going to say it to somebody that's going to know... But they just did a, a press release, you know, the the head of it, because uh, Machine Gun Gun Kelly and uh, Megan Fox were like, they drink each other's blood occasionally or whatever. Yes. And the, the head of the Vampire Association, which this sounds absolutely ridiculous when I'm saying this, to go from this hardcore science to the vampire talk. <laughs> it's like, you know, they really need to make sure that they're tested and da 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 You know, it's trying to give them some advice in their drinking of blood. Um, it takes all kinds. Yeah. It's, a, it's a strange world out there. <laughs> so strange. But even within that phenomenon, you know, if we just look at the core issue here, we've, we've, evo- we've devolved from being a society that practices um, natural association to circadian rhythms, right? So probably the fastest growing field of medicine right now is circadian medicine, and looking at how the timing of things and the timing of day is influencing our health outcomes. And so just to give a brief snapshot of what that looks like, every single cell in your body has its own uh, kind of biological clock. And I would hear this back in the day, you know, 15, we'll just say 15 years ago, I've been in the field for 20 years, but just early in my career, just like biological clock. It just sounds kind of, mm, I don't know. But truly what we know today is that we have, there, there, when we say a bio, biological clock, what the hell is it? These are genes, clock genes, and also proteins 
that function to kind of regulate our body's association with the environment, with the, with the earth revolving and moving around the sun and the moon and all the whole, the whole movement of the entire galaxy, our bodies are constantly trying to sync up with all of life. It's trying to sync up with that. And every other animal in nature is synced up with it. Humans, we used to be synced up with it. And it's controlling, for example, those clock genes are controlling when you're producing testosterone, how much HGH, estrogen, estradiol, uh, your uh, cortisol levels, your neurotransmitters, serotonin, all these things are controlled. The top controller is the circadian clocks on when stuff is actually getting activated. Your digestion is controlled by this. Your uh, blood pressure, you know, even just if we think about a snapshot in our lives, your digestion changes throughout the day. You know, like it's not often probably you're waking up in the middle of the night to go number two, you know, to take a poo. So I just thinking, I just talked with the gastroenterologist guy, so poop jumped into my mind. But that doesn't happen very often unless maybe you ate something unsavory, you know. I'm from St. Louis, so maybe some White Castles. Might have been a mistake. You know, <laughs> oh, White Castle. I, <laughs> after the club. I'm from St. Louis too, remember? I remember Oh, White yeah, Castle. so you know. <laughs> so yeah, that might have happened. But generally, you know, it's during the day when our, you know, our, our digestion is kind of more robust and triggering peristalsis. All this stuff is running on these clocks. What happens when we come along and start smashing these clocks by ignoring our connection to nature, to life itself? Bad stuff starts happening, right? So... But in our culture, we, we went from being in association with these clocks just naturally, being up working during the day because things were safe, because we're not nocturnal. We don't see very good at night, but that lion does, you know, like, so we're going to be doing, you know, hunting, getting our food together, building shelter, having connection, all that stuff. And then at night you seek shelter, you seek protection so you can make it to the next day, Right. But today, you know, with the advent of obviously electricity and, you know, the light bulb and all those things, we start to have the opportunity to have 24-7 work hours. And people who have the ability to control other people's times, instead of you having your own thing that your family just, you, this was your job as part of the tribe, now we go and work for other people in factories, right? Now we're exchanging our time for money and we no longer control our own time, Right. And so we, we, we devolve from there further to a place where we have this hustle culture today where, you know, sleep is for suckers, right? I'll sleep when I'm dead. And all of these little catchphrases, these little, these little terms, and they, they mean well because they want people to be successful and to go after their dreams. But no, sleep is actually for the smart. Sleep is one of the things that's required for optimal function of every single thing about you. You can lie to yourself and think that I'm going to sacrifice my sleep and I'm going to perform at a high level. But guess what? I got data for you. Study was published in The Lancet. They did, a, they did this on physicians. They looked at physicians and they had them to come in and complete a task, monitor their results. Then they sleep deprived them and had them do the same task just after 24 hours sleep deprivation, which is not abnormal. Had them to complete the same exact task. Guess what happened? They made 20% more mistakes doing the same exact thing. And it took them 18% longer to do the same exact thing. So you think that you're, you know, you're, you're grinding, you're getting work done, you're kicking ass, but you're really, there's a big difference between doing work and being effective. And then having to fix your oh, mistakes yeah. from all the, all the problems you create 
by you being sleep deprived? And so that's a big question, a lot of pieces, and I just t- touched on a little bit of it, but that's really how this kind of, we found ourselves in this situation. It's wild to me. One of the main reasons I did not become an MD was because I knew that I would not survive residency. I just knew it. I knew with my health being what it was that there was no way I was getting through those long, long residency shifts. I just, I was like, my adrenals will be destroyed. (laughs) That'll be the end of all good. And it is so apparent to me as a physician. So the work that I did, as I mentioned, I stuck big needles in people all day long. I mean, I stuck four inch needles into people's spines and I had a rule. I didn't start until 10 a.m. I didn't start seeing patients until until 10 a.m. And I took my last patient at four o'clock if it was a procedure because I knew I only had a few short hours. I've got about five hours in the day when I am on and I am really on. Uh, I can do tasks outside of that, but not high skill tasks. And I was smart enough to appreciate that about myself. And so we would schedule maybe a knee or a hip or something easy and low risk first thing off. And I would schedule the hardest, you know, necks, spines, things where risk obviously and liability go up so that I would be at my peak of, you know, kind of my zone of genius for the day. And then the last procedure of the day had to, again, be something I could do in my sleep, like a shoulder, ankle, something like that. And my staff didn't totally understand that. Patients didn't understand that. They would call and say, well, I, you know, I'm an important person and I want to get my neck done at 7 a.m. And I'm like, dude, you do not want me to be doing your neck at 7 a.m. That's <laughs> just not something we need to be working out with because that is, that is so true. And I can't imagine how many medical mistakes are made because of sleep deprivation Ooh. and burnout oh in healthcare gosh, workers. It's scary. Can you imagine? It's Even scary. just the wrong prescription. It is so easy, Sean, to write the wrong prescription. Yeah or type something in just barely off. It's 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 much more common and easy to do than you think. And I have thank God knock on wood, I've never had any problems. I've never had I've never hurt a patient. I've never had any malpractice issues. But I knew that was another reason I wanted to close my practice. I was getting to a point of burnout where I knew I was a mistake was looming. I just knew it was a matter of time because I was so physically tired that I was like, you know what, I'm going to screw something up and I don't want to go there. So I'm going to step away for now. And, you know, I had my online business running and rolling and I was doing great there. And I was training other physicians to do the work that I did in injection therapy. So I knew hopefully millions more lives would be touched. But this is stuff that no one talks about is these high level, especially some of these high level skill jobs that people are performing and doing so on a sleep deprived state. It's not even, you know, we could go on and on about COVID and immunity, but I mean, let's just talk about reality. Like you said, pre-COVID people are burning the candle at all ends and then expecting themselves not to make horrendous mistakes, car accidents. I mean, just the, the list goes on and on of potentials from just people walking around thinking it's, you know, stoic to function on five hours of sleep. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's just, these are these perceptions, these stories that we tell ourselves. You have a level of self-awareness. This is, again, just speaks to your experience and your education and your ability to self-assess that, again, largely because we don't feel well and we're sleep deprived, we don't do that shit. We don't actually look within and to monitor these things and have the awareness, nor do like the way that these things are set up, like it's so money driven, unfortunately. And again, we get into the field because we want to help people. But not understanding, we get into this position where it's going to be quantity over quality just to keep the lights on, you know, and that's not how 
that's not what health is. Like it's so far from what health really is because even working in this field, you know, even the name, you know, being a doctor is teacher, you know, having the ability to educate and empower people where today it's becomes paternal. Like it's becomes like uh, this very strange relationship where, you know, you outsource this stuff and you don't get the education. You don't understand a damn thing about what's happening in your own body. You know, it's very strange. And we find ourselves in this position, but at the same time, this is the crazy thing. Like we're in this very strange, this last two years has brought so much to the surface. And I really believe that as things were trucking along, like they were changing, things were changing, but very, very slow. Now things are so Mm -hmm. much in flux that it's more malleable and there's, it's more, it's easier to change. And the, the divisiveness and the targeting of really brilliant people who would just have a, maybe a slightly different perception of things or, you know, um, position on things than the popular narrative getting targeted has made them rise up in ways like they, they didn't, these are just some nerds. They weren't trying to be the face of a, <laughs> you know, some kind of health reform thing or, you know, advocacy, but the system the, as things are made it, made it like that to where they stepped up in this way. And they're just like, Oh no, we actually need to look into this whole thing. And matter of fact, one of those whole things, and I wasn't planning on mentioning this, but one of those whole things that's not being talked about, researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, this was years ago, prior to COVID being in our lives, found that sleep-deprived individuals, so folks who were sleeping less than six hours a night, were over 11 times less likely to to be protected by a vaccine than those who got adequate sleep. 11 times, not two times, not five, 11 times less likely And so this thing becoming the end all be all and understanding like the effectiveness plummets, the perceived effectiveness, let me put that in parentheses, perceived effectiveness plummets if you're not adhering to this basic human tenet. What about the basic human tenet? That's free, right? Not to mention the thing that's making, you know, a hundred billion dollars for Pfizer and, you know, having these lackluster results. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. And also, we did promise to to touch on sleep and metabolism. So I could share a little bit of data on that really quick, if that's cool. Yeah, please do. Can I, before you do, I want to I mention, because the audience, if they're new to this podcast and they're coming on because you're here, something that I talk about often and I know you have as well is along with that efficacy of vaccines, we knew long before COVID that those who are metabolically unsound those who are obese, those who are frail and sickly, those who are malnourished, they don't seroconvert well at all. They don't seroconvert, meaning they don't make a, an appropriate antibody response. And so this is just one more thing to add to that. So if people are not sleeping, which is probably leading to all those other problems I just led to, to some degree, which you're, we're going to segue into. Uh, but that's it. Like it, it doesn't matter if we thought the vaccine was going to save the day or not. If you're not a healthy individual, the vaccine isn't going to work well on you. And that's it. I mean, that's that's the end. This is why we are in this perpetual cycle that is looking to never end because we have a horrifically unhealthy population of human beings on this planet who can't seem to handle what I think is was a moderate, it's now a very benign virus to those who are not vaccinated. It's a, It was a moderate virus that I think 100 years ago would have been handled very differently by human beings. And so... Now we're in the pickle with Pfizer. But anyway, move move to the metabolic health and sleep because this is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when I mentioned that this is possibly the biggest controller of your metabolic outpicturing, again, 
that's a that's a tough thing for me to say, but the data shows something really remarkable. So I'm just going to mention maybe one or two profound studies on this. So one of them was conducted by researchers at the University of Chicago, and it was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And what they wanted to find was that if we put people on a conventional weight loss program, which a lot of times these things don't work very well either, but they put them on a conventional calorie-restricted diet and wanted to see what would happen with their outcomes based on how much sleep they get. All right. So they got these folks on a calorie restricted diet and they sleep deprived them. All right. So they're getting five and a half hours of sleep and they track all of their results. All right. Another phase of the study, same calorie restricted diet, no additional or taking away of exercise. They just allow them to get more sleep. So now they have eight and a half hours to sleep. Right. So three more hours of sleep and tracked all their metrics. They compiled all the data. Now, here's what's most important about this study. This was not looking just at weight loss. That was a sidebar. It was looking at body fat loss, actual fat mass loss. And they found that when the test subjects were able to get sufficient amounts of sleep, they lost 55% more body fat on the same exact diet simply by getting the sleep that their body required. Now, wow. what I don't usually talk about, and I'm talking about this again because I'm with you, is that people did lose weight still who were on the calorie restriction and sleep deprived, but about 60, I'm sorry, yeah, it was 60% of the weight that they lost was from their lean muscle tissue, all right? So they were losing their muscle when they were sleep deprived. It's insane. And what does that do? Your metabolic rate, so your ability to just manage and expend energy efficiently, that begins to plummet. So you're setting yourself up for future failure. You're on this calorie-restricted diet and you're losing weight. I'm happy. But you're changing your metabolism and, and compromising your metabolism in, uh, in detrimental ways to now that weight accumulation that's going to happen when you gain the weight back. Not only that, but you're probably going to add more weight. And then that's where we see this vicious circle that much of our society gets into because nobody's telling them like, okay, so you're, okay, you're going to change your diet. You're going to eat better. You're going to manage your calories, whatever it is, but we got to make sure that we're optimizing your sleep or you're screwed. That's not happening, but I'm grateful that that conversation has shifted again during this COVID phenomenon. A lot of that shit went out the window, but it's still present. We're getting back to it because things were really starting to change, you know, and when I, when I wrote my first book, my first major published book, Sleep Smarter, I was in this conversation. I got 11 offers, including four of the big five. So there was like, a, there was like a, an auction happening you know, to try to get the rights to the book. But several of these, these um, publications, they were wanting to shift the topic. They're like, I don't know, like sleep doesn't tend to do well, you know, all this stuff. Because there had never been a sleep wellness related book that had become, you know, like a bestseller, international bestseller. And it's kind of here today, gone today. But I, I knew I had the data and also the way that I wrote the book because it's a very, it, things have changed, but it's a very unsexy, it can be an unsexy topic. Somebody like yourself that had that year of, of, of I almost said sexual sleep, like sexual like <laughs> attraction to sleep, like this very delicious like oh, sensual uh, connection with <laughs> sleep. Good. 
So that's what I really did was like, how can I make this subject sexy? You know, something that's so weird. Like, what the hell? You're like, what is sleep? It's so weird. Like, what are you even doing? Right. And so making it attractive, but also how can we make this accessible? Because in, in my clinical practice and working with all these people over the years, I saw I noticed this really interesting thing. People want change, but they don't want to change that much. Right. They want these results and they say, you know, I'll do this or whatever. But they really don't want to change. They're comfortable, even if they're not happy with who they are, where they are. They're comfortable with themselves. So trying to get people to turn their whole lives upside down, like do change this with their diet and this exercise and this thing and that thing. You start and it creates this kind of, you know, paradox of choice, you know, where you're just debilitated. You got all this shit to do and you just don't do any of it versus I would looked in the data like what are some things people can do? clinically proven that they don't have to turn their life upside down and they can improve their sleep quality. And I just started stacking those things, implementing it with patients, eventually, you know, just seeing people, you know, struggle for 20 years with their blood sugar and their blood sugar finally normalized once we got their sleep together. Because the whole time they were working with me, maybe they were coming in and seeing me for a year and 80% of other folks who are diabetic got results and their blood sugar just would not normalize without metformin or insulin or whatever the case might be. It took me five years in the field, like once I actually started doing like clinical work for me to ask people about their sleep, which for many healthcare practitioners, they never ask. But something, it Mm -hmm. just struck me one day. It just struck me. And I think it was rooted in my own struggles with sleep. And I realized like when you're sleeping well, you don't ever think about it. It's just like, it's not, you don't even think about it. It's why. And I remembered when I started sleeping, well, I got better so fast. Like that was the leverage point because if you're not sleeping, you're not healing. Right. And so this is when your body's producing, this is the anabolic state. When you're up, yep. you're, everything is catabolic. All right. This is the anabolic state for a human being to be in where everything is getting hyper levels of like recovery, repair, HGH production, uh, reparative enzymes, all this stuff is working to really get stuff sorted out. The glymphatic system of the brain is 10 times more active when you're asleep, helping to clear out metabolic waste and recycle cells and all these things. It's bringing you back better and stronger. And so that's that part, that ingredient was really where the magic happened for me. You know, changing my nutrition, changing my movement practices, even the way that I was associating with people in my environment, my relationships, all this stuff changed but it was helping me to sleep better at night. And when I was sleeping better, everything changed. So um, I just wanted to share that piece there with the metabolic relationship with sleep. And, you know, during that, we can get into, you know, the, the, the leptin association. You know, Stanford researchers found that sleep deprivation, one of the first things that happens is a decrease in leptin, which is one of those major controllers of our appetite, right? And also melatonin itself is a very powerful metabolic hormone. We don't think about it in those terms, but it's a big controller of your immune function. But also one of the things we noted in, in some peer review data is how melatonin increases your production and mobilization of brown adipose tissue, right? So your, your fat that burns fat. And I can go on and on about all these connections, you know, to the metabolism and sleep. But the bottom line is it's one of the things that we're doing that is handicapping us from reaching the results that are really possible for us. And I, I'm really passionate about getting this integrated into every part of our culture. And so just to put the cherry on top of this, 
Sleep Smarter came out. It was the first sleep wellness book to become an international bestseller. It's translated in 21 different countries now, you know, all these different languages. Uh, it was a best-selling audio book for like, I don't know, like six years or five years. Uh, it's just now, every, I mean, every now and then it still pop back into the top 10. But it's just like it was an idea whose time had come, right? There's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. That's what the, you know, the quote says. And truly, I truly do believe that. It's a, it's such an important topic and it's so underappreciated, like you mentioned. And I really appreciate you bringing all of these benefits up and putting that book out there because it's, like you said, it has to be sexy. I've met some sleep docs who were trying to write books, who were trying to build online platforms and, you know, they just, like somebody, somebody with some pizzazz had to come out and talk about it because it's so completely underappreciated and undervalued, especially in our modern society in the United States and in Western culture. Something I was thinking about while you were just speaking on the hormones that I do want to mention, because I mentioned this last week in a podcast I did about joint health was leptin is also this ties back to what you I mean, it's this is all making sense now that you're sharing your story why your spine decided to melt on you, which is what happened your spine just spontaneously essentially melted for a minute for a hot minute, and you pulled it back together. But um, leptin is very much implicated and part of degenerative joint disease throughout the body. So elevated leptin levels, which so many Americans are walking around with because of leptin resistance is contributing directly to their metabolic dysfunction. I actually have a product that is shown clinically to bring down leptin levels into more regular levels. And I sell it as a metabolic product, but I call it Metaboflex because it really, to me, is a joint product. Everything in the end comes back to orthopedic joints, you know? And the other thing you said about melatonin, that is... uh, so low in patients when you start testing it, like on Dutch tests, it's a, it's one of the factors you can see and it's so low in people. And that's one of those things that just slowly tiptoes you low melatonin slowly tiptoes you into cancer yeah. and, and elevated cancer risk. So, I mean, these are all, hopefully I, I just share this because hopefully the audience can see it all goes together. This all goes together and you're so correct. Just simply that one simple factor of putting yourself to bed. That's what I always would tell patients. This is a question I would ask actually right on the intake right away when I had a patient come in is how's your sleep? Because if a patient walked in the door and said their sleep was great, I knew it was going to be no problem to get them to come around. If their sleep was on point and their libido was intact, it was going to be so easy to fix up their joints and to fix up their orthopedic system and their health in general. If their sleep was tanked out and they said, oh, I'm not sleeping at all. I'm like, oh, we are in trouble. This is going to be a much longer haul. And I'm sure you saw that clinically too. Those people are much harder to turn that ship around for. And there's different reasons why you can't fall asleep versus stay asleep. And I think if we tried to get into that here, it would become a massively long episode. (laughs) But you mentioned it in the beginning, your sleep at night starts when you wake up, it starts with your day, right? So sun gate or horizon gazing, setting that circadian clock, uh, managing your stress levels so that your adrenal glands don't freak out. But are there, is there any other tips that you found through all of your research and writing this book that are simple and easy to implement that we could share with the audience? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, innovations in clinical neuroscience. Um, so one of these journals is, that's looking at what's happening with your brain and nervous system, and they were looking at this association with sunlight and our sleep quality. And one of the really fascinating things is that this, the sun, sun exposure is one of those circadian controllers, like melatonin. We just see it as this, quote, sleep hormone, but it's a major circadian controller that's determining when so much of your body is doing what it's doing. 
And so one of the things that they found was that when folks got sun exposure in the earlier part of the day, their cortisol was lower in the evening, right? And so one of the things that we would see, of course, you know, with folks, you know, we call them tired and wired when their cortisol is too high in the evening and too low in the morning. Because your cortisol, through a natural cortisol rhythm, your cortisol should be kind of jumping up there uh, in the early part of the day and peaking and then gradually dropping as the day goes on. But we would see kind of the opposite, which makes it difficult to get out of bed in the morning. And also at night, people are just like, I'm just up. I just feel awake and alive at night. And it's because their body is out of sync, right? And so one of those things that can help to adjust or reset that cortisol rhythm is getting some exposure, some some natural sunlight exposure. And those first, I like to say the first two hours of you know the sun rising, uh, which is ideal, but also there's more and more data coming out about that sunlight exposure and serotonin production. And serotonin is a precursor to making melatonin, right? So ser- tryptophan is the precursor for serotonin. So you need to, the, the diet implement is there. But serotonin is a building block. It's kind of like the opening act for, you know, melatonin's performance, right? So, but if you're not getting that sun exposure, another one of those things that we would have throughout our evolution that today is just like, ah, fuck the sun. Like we could just create our own uh, little, we could basically manufacture whatever time we want, right? So like if I, my wife took me to Las Vegas recently. So I've, I've been there to speak many times, but I've never like done stuff. And she took me to like, there's a concert and like Cirque du Soleil and all this stuff. But I'm just like, I'm seeing people in there and then I'll see the person like the next morning, like in the same spot. And I'm just like, what the, and me working at a casino, I started to remember like, wow, yeah, I would see these people, like they practically live here and under these like really strange lights and you never really know what time it is, right? So we can manufacture a second daytime or a nighttime whenever we want. This is what's different and unique about humans, but we can really mess ourselves up. And so, yeah, but the bottom line is, you know, it's... It's so fascinating to see how when we get out of alignment with these things, how disease symptoms start to manifest and how quickly getting in alignment with these things, our bodies are really intelligent. And that's the thing, you know this in, in coming from your background, you know, this, there's this innate intelligence and we are not even close to understanding and not even remotely close. And that's a big part of the issue today is that we have folks who've mandated all of these things that for us to do with our bodies and they don't really know shit about health. They don't really know anything like the top immunologists. Like again, I've got friends who are immunologists. They know less than 1% about all there is to know about immunology and about viruses. For If we were just talking about viruses, they know less than a, a fraction of a percent of all the viruses there are. Right now we have over 400 trillion virus particles in and on our bodies. We're teeming with mm-hmm. viruses. You know, the, vi- the human virome has been a subject of study for many years. But what people don't understand is like, even our immune system itself, the very best theory, the one that's actually taught in university settings on how did a human immune system evolve, it evolved from a virus that integrated with us, facing off against other viruses. And the Human Genome Project, mapping out what makes us human, right? In the Human Genome Project, it was found that like 8% of our genetic makeup is viral. We are, ourselves are viruses. And if you even look at our behavior in the yeah. environment, by the way, and so like, 
to act like you know and to be the end all be all, that's the hu- that's a huge that should be a huge red flag. And so I'm here constantly as a student. I figured a few things out, but everything has to have context because at some point the very best theories can fall apart, you know. But some of the things we can lean on is looking at what helped us to get to this place. What did our ancestors do? You know, what are the what are the inputs that our genes expect from us to have healthy expression versus expression of disease symptoms? Because talking with the top uh, cell biologist, really a father of epigenetics, because he's the per- if you've heard the term epigenetics, it's thanks to Dr. Bruce Lipton pushing this into popular culture. And when I talk with him, and I might slip and say, you know, um, genes, for, you know, for disease, like Sean, Sean, Sean. There are no genes that code for diseases. That doesn't exist, right? What these are, these genetic programs, they manifest symptoms, again, as I said earlier, to change the way the human body is, is operating un, under unideal conditions. Less than 1% of diseases are related to a true genetic defect. Most of this stuff is due to the way that we are living and how we associate with our with our external and internal environment. So much power is under our control. And this is what needs to be taught. And this is why I really admire what you do, because it's about empowerment. You know, it's about empowerment and it's about let's actually implore, implore, I'm sorry, employ things that actually work and that have proof. Like we've got a long lineage of these things, not some shit that was just made last week, right? Like that, again, if we're operating from a place of logic and intelligence, and last little thing here, I got to say this, what would get us to the place where we abandon our logic, where we abandon rationality, fear and divisiveness. Fear and divisiveness is a perfect formula to get you from your prefrontal cortex, you know, part of your brain is associated with, you know, logic, forethought, distinguishing between right and wrong, uh, distinguishing between ideas and get you to have an, uh, an amygdala hijack take place where you're operating from emotion, where you're more concerned about survival of self and you're just not showing up as your best self, fear and divisiveness. We've got to heal these, these issues because they in and of themselves are deadly, but I believe that we can do it. Amen. I'm so excited right now. <laughs> be pumped up. <laughs> well, you know how to do it. Those things are really, really, I mean, you know this, you're a human being, you've lived through it. When, how did you feel when you came, you know, you woke up from a night of poor sleep? There's way more anxiety. There's way more easily triggered of all things, fear included, right? And so putting ourselves to bed at an appropriate time, even if it's, you know, I mean, in our house, it's like nine o'clock, we're going to bed, like little kids. I'm like, oh, time to go to bed. We want to watch three more episodes of our show on Netflix, but we're going to bed because that's it. Because the next day, I am a piece of shit if I don't go to sleep. (laughs) I am a bitch. I am full of anxiety. I don't make good decisions around my relationships, my business, my creativity is gone. Too many nights of sleep, 
lacking sleep and I start to get nauseous and I start to vomit all day and I don't want to eat. And we think about this with humans and we go, oh, let's let's make it so complicated. But it's like, look at our dogs. Would we sleep deprive our dogs? That's kind of the joke in my house is if my dog's in a deep sleep, it's time to go to bed. Mm-hmm. Whenever Sansa goes to bed, it's time for Tina to go to bed mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's it, right? And so this fear and, di- and division that you speak of is just, it's eradicating us as a species. And it is happening because of these other things that you and I have touched on, which is poor decisions around food, but that comes from lack of sleep, poor decisions around or, or fatigue and not wanting to exercise and have movement, but that also comes from lack of sleep. And so at the core of it all, I think the easiest way to not become overwhelmed, as you mentioned, that 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 overwhelm just leads to, you know, you freeze up and you don't do anything. The first step is always just to put yourself to bed. And when you do, suddenly you can be a normal human the next day and you can make good decisions about your health and your family and all the other things around us, you know, and your your community at large. So I really appreciate the way that you've tied all this together and brought it full circle as a story with so many great pearls and yet it's all data backed. You know, you always bring the science, which I am such a huge fan of. Uh, in your work. So thank you, Sean. I love talking to you. I just I I have such a fun time. I was so excited to have you on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You know, like you mentioned, I think we think in a similar in a similar way. And so, you know, I really appreciate your work and I appreciate you sharing your voice and your perspective. And fortunately, you know, if this whole thing didn't happen, you know, we might not have connected, you know, but I got to see this one of the things that you posted as well that I saw. And I'm, I was saying this prior to seeing that, that like, I really got to see who's about that life, really, like, I really got to see who is courageous and who is, you know, somebody that won't compromise their values and their integrity, just because something external happens, you know, and so being able to rise to the occasion, and as you mentioned, you know, a, a symptom, like, we're the symptom is fear, the symptom is divisiveness, but the root cause is a severely unhealthy society where fear is so easily accessible, right? An inability to manage one's emotions and their brain health. You know, we're knocking on the door right now. When the numbers come out, I think COVID kicked us over that number where we were approaching 250 million United States citizens being overweight or obese. It, 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 you can't even understand. Like, it makes no sense. We can't really comprehend a number like that. But that's what's happened. And it's, again, that's another symptom of a deeper thing, which is a disconnection from ourselves, from each other, from education, from empowerment, right? And so that's the beautiful thing about this time. We have equal access to, you know, uh, to, to online gossip as we do to education and empowerment. So we get to choose. And it's not an either or. It could be a both and world because that Netflix show might be dope. But for me, because my, my brain is in a place, my physical health is in a place where I can choose. And I could say, I value feeling good more than I value this next episode, right? And I have some sovereignty, right? I have some, I have some agency in that decision. It becomes more difficult when we are sleep deprived. It becomes more difficult when we're not feeling well, when our mental health is struggling. You know, one of the things that we see, for example, when, pe- when folks are, are sleep deprived, students Every hour of sleep loss leads to about a 20% increase in cyber loafing the next day. That's when we're just getting on the phone, just like mindlessly scrolling, right? And so, but before we we go, I got to throw one more thing in. I mentioned the sunlight to help to reset the circadian rhythm. Another thing is exercise. It's one of those things that can get that cortisol 
jumped right up. And I recommend just within the first hour of waking up, do something. For me, it's five minutes. Like I'll just go for a quick five minute power walk. You know, I used to jump on my rebounder, you know, like I'll do something and I work out like my workout is a little bit later. But if you go to the gym first thing, cool. If you work out after work, cool. Get that five minutes in in the morning to help to reset that cortisol rhythm. Appalachian State University did a great study having test subjects train at either 7 a.m., 1 p.m. or 7 p.m. And they found that morning exercisers tend to have more efficient sleep cycles. They tend to spend more time in the deepest, most anabolic stages of sleep. They tend to sleep longer, and they also have a correlated uh, lower drop in blood pressure in the evening, which is, that's kind of synonymous with the uh, deactivation of the sympathetic fight or flight nervous system. I can go on and on. I got the data, <laughs> but the bottom line is, are you doing it? And it's so simple. You know, this doesn't have to take up your whole day. You know, matter of fact, you can stack those things. You could do that five minutes of exercise outside and get some sunlight. You know, but yeah. you know, there's 21 clinically proven strategies in Sleep Smarter, you know, that are all, again, backed by data, very easy to implement. And it just should be about empowerment and you being able to pick like, oh, this thing works for me in my life. I don't have to do 21 things. Just these two things can radically improve my sleep and radically improve my health. I love it. Easy to navigate book, you guys. Sleep Smarter book. You can find it on Amazon. Is that the pl- best place to grab it? Of course. Yeah, Amazon, yeah. just wherever books are sold. Actually, the book that you'll probably find most easiest is, is my latest book, Eat Smarter. That's still in all the bookstores yeah. and Target and all that stuff. USA Today, national bestseller, all that good stuff. So yeah, it's a powerhouse. They couple together. Right? They're, they're, they're like that powerful one-two punch to optimize our health. Hey, you know, congratulations on all that. I don't know if people tell you that that often, but th- this is huge. Like, it's not easy to get a book deal, and it's not easy to have two great selling books. So congratulations. You've put in a lot of work. Your podcast is phenomenal. People love you. Your Instagram is such a valuable resource. Um, I just, I really appreciate you holding the line. It's helped inspire me to keep pushing too. And I think that the concerted effort to silence the helpers was strong. And a few of us came through with integrity. And I know that I sometimes got a little angry throughout this process, but I'm only a human being. And you always, I would come back to your page, you were always such a diplomat about things. And you were always just staying with the science and keeping a cool head. And it's been really inspiring to me. So I I emulate you at times. I'm like, I got to be a little more like, what would Sean do right now? <laughs> Sean would not get pissed off. Sean would just stay the course and bring up another study. <laughs> but you also, you also haven't seen the tire that I've been pounding with a sledgehammer, you know, also, you know, so. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> awesome. Is there anywhere else, be- the podcast, the Sean Model, or the, the Model Health Show, uh, the book, your podcast, sh- tell people where to go and find you. Absolutely, yeah. So the Model Health Show, people can find wherever they're listening to this awesome podcast, you can find the Model Health Show. And I'm at Sean Model on Instagram. Um, and of course, you know, you can pick up Eat Smarter, Sleep Smarter, anywhere that books are sold. And, you know, regardless, just plug yourself in. Like if you're listening to this right now, you're already about that life and you are an exceptional human being and part of the the progress, part of change, positive change. And so I just want to acknowledge everybody listening because we all need each other right now more than ever, but we're, the, the, the history is being written and it's going to be based on the decisions that we make right now. So it's just plugging yourself in to things that keep you educated and empowered and also finding, as you mentioned, one of the things that I've worked on prior to getting to this place of just being more diplomatic and always looking for a way that I could put myself in someone else's shoes and to express 
compassion and kindness and patience, while at the same time, I am about that life too, you know? So we're not, I'm not talking about dealing with, you know, disrespect or, or vitriol, that kind of thing, but just holding a space for people who just don't know, like when we're inundated with fear and or we're not well, it's not that we're bad people. We're just trying to figure stuff out because I could be that guy, you know, that 20 year old version of me, if you had the audacity to hold a space for me and to extend a little bit more love and, you know, find a way in, find a way to empower me. If I want to fight back, if I want to like, you know, kick you in the, in the thyroid, like, so be like, leave me alone. But if I'm like, really, if, if, if I'm extending some, if I'm able to see you and to acknowledge you as another valuable human being, let's connect, like, let's make something happen. And so, yeah, that's, that, those are all the places you can find me. And again, I just appreciate you so much for doing what you're doing. I love talking with you and looking forward to doing this much more. Oh, thank you, Sean. It's a true honor. And I'm glad to call you a friend at this point. So plus side for the pandemic, right? That's we right. Gotta, we got to connect and check that one off. Corona awesome. Bonus. Thank you so much. The Corona bonus. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. You guys go follow Sean everywhere. He is a gift to the world. And uh, we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you, Sean, for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.